You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And on this episode, I'm glad to be joined by two guests, both joining me from Geneva, Switzerland. Joining me are John Bory and Wilfred Wan um, of the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research. Uh, I'll ask John and Wilfred to introduce themselves in a bit, but I did want to give listeners a preview of what this discussion will be about. Um, so I recently had the great pleasure of contributing to a volume prepared by Yundir, where John and Wilfred work, on nuclear risk reduction. Um, and uh, this was really a, a tremendous honor, um, and the project is just out this week. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to devote this episode to talking about some of the concerns raised in the report about nuclear risks in the Asia-Pacific, a familiar topic for listeners of this podcast. We've done quite a few episodes on nuclear issues around the region. Um, but before jumping into the discussion, and first of all, before asking John and Wilford to introduce themselves, uh, I did want to note that both of them are participating on this podcast in their capacity as, as researchers personally. They're not presenting any kind of institutional position uh, on behalf of UNIDIR or the United Nations at large. Um, so, John, do you want to kick us off with uh, just briefly telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and what UNIDIR is? Yeah, sure. Well, um, hi there, Ankit, and it's a pleasure to be on the show. My name's John Borry. As you can probably hear, I'm not another American. I'm uh, from New Zealand. Uh, many years ago, I was a New Zealand diplomat, but these days I coordinate the Institute's research, and I'm the program lead for weapons of mass destruction and other strategic weapons. So UNIDIR is a 40-year-old uh, organization. Uh, we're an institute within the UN family, and we're directly concerned with supporting uh, disarmament negotiations, uh, particularly in the nuclear field, but actually all across different issues. We're a very international institute. We have uh, people of nationalities from all over the world. And uh, we have, over the years, carried out a lot of work in the, in the nuclear disarmament and nuclear risk field. And uh, Wilfred can tell you more about that. Great. And uh, that's a great segue. Thanks for setting us up, John. Um, it is it is nice to hear um, your delightful accent on this podcast. So I hope our listeners enjoy listening to your voice as much as I do. Um, um, Wilfred, do you want to tell us a little bit about about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Ankit, for having us on the podcast. Uh, so I'm Wilfred Wan. I'm a researcher uh, leading Unidir's work on nuclear risk reduction. Um, my background is in political science, and I've uh, written on things like non-proliferation, disarmament, and arms control before. Great. Fantastic. So let's dive right in. Uh, before we get to the report more broadly, I know that Unidir has been doing work on nuclear risk reduction um, for a while now, uh, and this report did just come out. But Wilfred, I believe our first encounter personally was uh, here in New York back in uh, back on the sidelines of the UN First Committee in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when much of this work was getting off the ground. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, the nuclear risk reduction framework um, that UNIDIR has been working on um, and, and what exactly nuclear risk reduction is more broadly? Yeah, I'm very happy to do that, Ankit. So when we talk about nuclear risk reduction, we're talking about reducing the possibility that any use of nuclear weapons, intentional or inadvertent, takes place. And so this can include a range of activities, for instance, to improve the safety and security of nuclear weapons, to lessen the risk of accidents, and to lower the possibility for miscalculation in crisis. Now, risk reduction is not a new topic. Um, it emerged first during the Cold War, when the US and the Soviet Union uh, took steps to prevent another Cuban Missile Crisis from happening. 
But the topic has really re-emerged the last few years uh, on the agendas of a number of state-led initiatives and multilateral forums. And so why is it important now? Why is uh, Unidir been involved the last few years on this topic? And, and I think it's really because there's genuine concern about the state of risk today um, and quite well-founded concern for a number of reasons. Um, this includes the increasing tension and rivalry among nuclear armed states, uh, the erosion of global nuclear arms control and disarmament, uh, the continued presence and reliance on nuclear weapons, um, uh, the blurring line in conventional and nuclear capabilities, and simply the limits of our knowledge, including on weapons programs. And we can talk about all of these later, but uh, these various trends, I think, have really driven calls for practical risk reduction measures uh, that can have value in themselves, but also contribute to rebuilding some of the trust and confidence in the current uh, landscape. Right. Um, so tell us now a little bit about uh, the report that I briefly alluded to. Um, it, it, it's, it's organized across um, nine chapters taking looks at the issue of risk reduction, uh, primarily but not entirely uh, through a geographically divided lens. Um, but tell us a bit about, about the contributors and, uh, and what this volume was really trying to do. Sure. When we talk about risk, it's it's universal. That is, uh, nuclear uh, nuclear risk exists so long as nuclear weapons do. Um, but that said, risk manifests quite differently across different situations. It's in, intertwined with the nuclear characteristics of particular states as well as their security relations and so forth. And so with this volume, we really wanted to get into some regional and contextual analysis um, of, of the risk in these different situations. Um, and we were very happy to have a number of experts, yourself included, uh, as well as people like uh, Tanya Ogilvie-White, um, Hassan El-Batimi, um, Ulrich Kuhn, to look at uh, these different regions of the world in which nuclear weapons prominently feature. And I think it's by, by taking this kind of regional lens, then we can move on to prescribe risk reduction uh, measures that are appropriate to each context. Mm -hmm. Well, so, uh, John, I wanted to um, maybe now start zeroing in a little bit on the issue of nuclear risks in Asia. Uh, Wilford began his description of um, the report and of nuclear risk reduction more broadly by alluding uh, to the shifting environment and arms control, or rather the the dissolving of uh, traditional arms control arrangements. We can talk about the 1987 uh, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, something we've covered on the podcast before. Um, but when we look at Asia today, and particularly we look at uh, the American perspective on Asia, we start to see evidence that um, so-called great power competition uh, between the United States and China on one hand and the United States and Russia on the other uh, is really manifesting um, in, in the nuclear space as well, um, particularly the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, which is um, due up for expiration in February 2021, uh, still not extended. Uh, time is quickly running out, and the Trump administration appears quite intent on drawing China into a future treaty arrangement of some sort, be that a new type of new start or something new entirely. Um, and there have been a variety of proposals, um, some vaguer than others, um, 
uh, getting at this. Uh, China continues to be quite opposed to the entire idea of sitting down at a table with Russia and the United States to talk about its nuclear arsenal. Um, so, John, tell us a little bit about um, what our listeners should be aware of when it comes to this this broader issue of um, next generation arms control, I guess we might be able to say, um, and, and the possibility of China being drawn into such an arrangement. Yeah, absolutely, and Keith, and I think you use the, uh, the, the the phrase the evaporation of arms control in your chapter in the study, and I think that's that's quite apt. I mean, in hindsight, you know, we look back at the mid '90s, and that was probably the high point of sort of uh, legally uh, binding arms control agreements, and there was a lot of optimism at that time after the end of the Cold War that all sorts of things might be possible. But in fact, with the return of this sort of great power competition after you know, the the U.S.'s fairly brief unipolar moment, uh, we can see these increasing tensions. And the U.S.-China relationship is, is uh, you know, uh, one of the foremost amongst them. But also in North Asia, of course, it's a complicated situation for reasons you're well aware of and probably many of your listeners as well. But, you know, you have the situation with North Korea, you know, this, this nuclear armed state, which is not really, uh, it's sort of seen beyond the pale, uh, by many other states. You have states that certainly have the technological know-how to go nuclear but haven't done so, like Japan and South Korea. Uh, and you have this these in- increasing tension between states in the region. And I was earlier listening to, a, a, I think, your previous podcast episode where you were talking about uh, recent developments, for example, with Taiwan and the South China Sea. So all of these things are leading to increasing tension. And... Uh, on top of that, we have a number of uh, technologies which are either making a return or they're, uh, they're emerging uh, now. And these include um, things like, um, you know, advances in missile defenses. Uh, we can see uh, also anti-satellite weapons and counter space capabilities of various kinds uh, becoming of increasing concern. Uh, and we also see advanced missile technologies like hypersonics, the uh, the Chinese DF-17, for example, uh, but we also have a number of American systems under development and the Russians are doing their thing. Plus, you know, we have uh, kind of enabling technologies uh, in the cyber and, of course, the AI field, uh, which all of these things are contributing to increased strategic unpredictability. So it's making it more difficult for war planners, strategic planners, nuclear planners to be able to figure out uh, how should how should they prepare for worst case scenarios, and what are those scenarios? So there's a real role for arms control here uh, in, in in the new era um, to assist with that in order to create a bit more predictability and stability. But it's probably not going to look like the arms control we've seen in the past of exhaustive legally binding agreements that run to hundreds of pages, like the Chemical Weapons Convention, for example. We're going to see non-legally binding agreements, probably unilateral declarations or joint statements uh, that might be filled out in other ways through exchanges of information and increasing transparency. And maybe those things will lead to uh, kind of more uh, more constraining, legally binding things down the track. But it's hard to see that at the moment, given current tensions. I think I think that's I think that's quite right. Um, the, the point that I think I raised in my chapter is the role of strategic mistrust. Um, I mean, it's it's no secret that the United States and the Soviet Union, um, after living through a few 
um, near scares, most no- most notably um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, managed to actually do some work on arms control, uh, even in an environment of heightened mistrust, recognizing that the benefits of transparency and uh, constrained arsenals would be worth it in a even in a time of heightened competition. That sort of an understanding, I think, doesn't quite exist right now between the United States and China. And of course, um, ever since the global pandemic broke out, um, I think we're seeing the intensification of mistrust, uh, certainly on issues when when it comes to transparency. Um, as some of our listeners might not be aware, since it wasn't a huge story, but we've just had, again, an allegation um, from the Trump administration in its latest uh, arms control compliance report that China is conducting some kind of a surreptitious um, nuclear testing that doesn't adhere to the U.S. understanding of the zero yield standard. I'm not going to say more on that because it will start to get a little bit too wonky, perhaps. Um, But I think all of these uh, things come together to um, paint a rather pessimistic picture for the future of arms control. Um, But perhaps we will see arms control arising out of necessity on some level. Um, And in in this lesson, I think it's it's instructive to think about the role that um, previous crises have played. Um, But speaking of crises, I know know there's a lot of interest. um, I was actually... uh, Considering if if this week the podcast might have had to actually cover uh, North Korea, given um, the current uh, rumor mill around the world concerning the health of Kim Jong-un, the the North Korean leader. Of course, uh, we're not here to talk about uh, Kim Jong-un's medical reports per se. Um, But Wilfred, I wanted to um, give you a chance to talk a little, uh, tell us a little bit about um, Tanya's uh, chapter, Tanya Ogilvy-White's chapter on uh, Northeast Asia and North Korea. We heard a bit from John about South Korea and Japan. It's also interesting when we think about Asia and we think about nuclear risk reduction to consider the role that um, the beneficiaries of American extended nuclear deterrence, um, like Seoul and Tokyo, um, the role that they have to play in uh, potential uh, nuclear escalation scenarios in Northeast Asia. But tell us a bit about North Korea. I mean, it's, it's certainly the the newest nuclear possessor. It's the one that I think um, global thinking has shifted on the most in the last, let's say, five years in terms of um, just where they've come with their uh, indigenous capabilities. Uh, what, is, what are some of the things um, pertaining to nuclear risks that our listeners should be most aware of in the context of Northeast Asia and North Korea specifically? Sure. So I think Tanya in her chapter does a really nice job of kind of piecing together some of the issues that exist in the context of the Korean Peninsula. And and she highlights uh, first and foremost, just simply the general secrecy that uh, exists around the nuclear weapons program in North Korea, and really the overall decision making process. Uh, There's no official nuclear doctrine that outlines, for instance, the circumstances in which uh, North Korea uh, plans or is willing to consider the use of nuclear weapons. Um, The capabilities, our knowledge about the capabilities of North Korea's nuclear weapons program is uh, at times kind of a guess, right? And it's taken from these other external sources. And so so this secrecy around the program really makes it quite difficult and has uh, as a domino effect on war planning on um, the doctrine of other states. And John alluded to this in his previous response as well. Um, another aspect of risk in Northeast Asia, uh, which John talked about, is the tension and conflict that exists, including with US allies um, and the hostile relations and the constant military propagations uh, 
create these opportunities for um, escalation that could include nuclear use, which is quite a concern. Um, and, and one thing I would also highlight here is simply uh, our lack of knowledge about the North Korean nuclear program suggests that unauthorized access and the possibility of accidents cannot be ruled out as well. Mm-hmm. So something that I so I I briefly talk about North Korea in my chapter, um, and not to keep going back to it, but one of the one of the most interesting things I think about um, when it comes to North Korea's uh, own thinking about nuclear deterrence, and particularly the um, deterrence relationship. I guess this is contentious if if North Korea is actually in a uh, any kind of deterrence relationship right now at the nuclear level with the United States. But the North Koreans certainly recognize the asymmetry here. And Wilford, you you emphasize, um, or I guess you you discussed Tanya's emphasis of ambiguity for the North Koreans, um, ambiguity, secrecy, uh, opacity. Um, all of these things, I think, for the North Koreans are a feature and not a bug. Um, I think I think they see these facets of how the outside world thinks about their nuclear capabilities as effectively contributing uh, to deterrence. They don't have the same kind of, um, let's say, confidence that the United States might have in its own nuclear forces. The U.S., um, you know, for, for everything we, we do criticize the United States for on arms control and transparency, it's actually one of the most transparent uh, nuclear states on, uh, on several measures. Um, so how... In, in this environment, when you have this highly asymmetric um, deterrence relationship between a very resource-poor country trying to hold at risk the territory of the world's foremost military superpower on the other side of the planet, um, in this environment, I mean, how do you even begin to manage nuclear risk when it comes to a place like North Korea? Well, I think you hit at a quite important point, which is that risk is quite complex. And... Actually, John in his chapter brings this example that uh, U.S. missile defense really exists in, in, in ways to prevent escalation possibilities uh, with the DPRK, with North Korea. And this is seen by the U.S. as a risk reduction measure. But uh, the pursuits of missile defense can have long-term destabilizing effects um, with other states, including China and Russia, for instance, that can impact on risk in the long term. And so these dyads, these relationships don't really exist in isolation. Um, And so these developments that can have cascading effects and impact on risk uh, are are certainly quite relevant um, in in today's more interconnected environment. Um, And so in terms of managing risk, in terms of risk reduction, I think you really have to account for the fact that interpretation and um, um, perception plays such a huge role in that. Uh, And so what can you do to kind of lower the possibility for misperception? You have to have some sort of strategic engagement on dialogue on these issues. Yeah, Yeah, could could I add something something to that and, and keep... I mean, you made the interesting point about, you know, the deterrence relationship, whether it exists between North Korea and the U.S. Well, it's actually unclear whether a deterrence, nuclear deterrence relationship exists between China and the U.S. I mean, the United States has never formally uh, acknowledged um, that it's vulnerable to um, to China's nuclear deterrent in a way that it has in its relationship strategically with 
And one of the things that some experts, I think namely Tong Zhao, a Chinese scholar, have been calling for is that one useful step in the US-China strategic relationship could be a mutual recognition that they're vulnerable to each other. And then on the basis of that, you can, you can start to build um, up some kind of practical measures on that basis. Um, you know, the, the bottom line here is that some of the things that um, nuclear armed states do in peacetime, um, because it, it, it adds to the credibility of their nuclear deterrent, and that can be practices that are, for example, not transparent um, or a secretive, or they could involve co-mingling conventional and nuclear forces, for instance, as China is alleged to have done with some of its missile forces. These might be these might be of benefit to them in peacetime, but they can be deeply destabilizing in a crisis because the ambiguity that those behaviors or particular capabilities that they have can actually lead to confusion terms of decision making time for for um, decision makers in crisis that's right no i think uh yeah i think john that's a great point about a um a declaration of mutual vulnerability uh yes that's certainly not the case right now uh for china china does have sustained concerns about the survivability of its own nuclear forces um leading to i think um a deepening of mistrust and strategic anxiety uh i personally don't see this administration getting there given um you know, I think there are some questions actually about whether this administration would even acknowledge vulnerability about Russia um, in a uh, in an official setting, uh, contrary to some of its predecessors. Uh, and I think and I think when in China and Russia, people look at things like the U.S. Missile Defense Review, uh, the latest Missile Defense Agency budget submission. I think they find American reassurances that homeland missile defense or missile defense capable of intercepting intercontinental range missiles is exclusively designed for use against North Korea and potentially other um, so-called rogue states in the future. Uh, and they and they very much see a program directed at themselves. I mean, especially when the United States releases videos of F-35s um, destroying uh, Russian uh, road mobile Topol-M ballistic missile launchers. Uh, this was actually a thing that happened a few weeks ago. So um, there are, a, um, I think, I think several concerns here. But anyways, before we get too drawn into the offense-defense balance and uh, and missile defense, um, John, I think you've kind of opened the door to talking a little bit about uh, the role of emerging technologies. Uh, certainly, I think Asia is one of the one of the one of the spaces where many of these technologies are coming to bear in important ways, uh, not only in the realm of um, nuclear weapons, but also conventional. I mean, we had a um, October 1st military parade in China that featured um, things like the, the PLA Strategic Support Force, a number of advanced autonomous capabilities, potentially with artificial intelligence imbuing their capabilities, things like the GJ-11 um, sharp sword um, autonomous um, unmanned combat vehicle. Um, so tell us a little bit about the role of the emerging technologies that you see to be the most important in the nuclear space. You referenced some of these when you were introducing yourself and your work, but um, it'd, be, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about how these play out in, in the space of nuclear risk. Yeah, sure. So I, I mentioned sort of a, a smorgasbord of technologies. And of course, you know, we are crystal, ba crystal ball gazing a bit. We don't know, you know, the future and we don't know which of these technologies are going to become the most important. For example, a lot of experts feel there's quite a bit of hype about hypersonic weapons, you know, and, and that their, their impact will actually be overstated. But I was talking about a brace of technologies, including these advanced long-range uh, missiles, cyber, AI, anti-satellite weapons, 
even lower yield, high precision nuclear weapons, you know, can be thought of in this way. They, they kind of do four things, which can be, or one of one or more of four things, which can kind of contribute to a destabilized situation. And the first thing is that they might, some of these technologies are going to offer defenses or means of undermining rivals, missile and space capabilities. And beyond exploding or kinetic hit to kill interceptor missiles or projectiles, these kind of capabilities can extend even to left of launch capabilities like cyber or directed energy technologies. The second thing is that some of these capabilities, and that could include hypersonic glide vehicles or these long range stealthy precision missiles with conventional warheads, they could perform missions that were once reserved for nuclear weapons. And these kind of missions include destroying an adversary's nuclear forces or attacking their nuclear early warning and command and control systems. So you could even add forms of cyber and electronic intrusion to that. Um, these things could undermine operators' confidence in the reliability of their command and control systems. Mm-hmm. And the third way is that some of these advances can permit more effective tracking of the adversary's nuclear forces. And one of my favorite phrases that's cropped up, and I'm sure you've run across this, Ankit, is the, um, this kind of concept of exquisite awareness that somehow sort of the combination of sensors and artificial intelligence will allow, you know, a, a state to know where most or all of an adversary's mobile nuclear platforms happen to be so that in principle it might preemptively destroy those. I don't think that's ever going to be the case in practice, but it's it's kind of a temptation for states to try to move toward that in terms of technologies like better satellite remote sensing, electronic barriers and more sophisticated and autonomous sensors um, combined with machine learning and kind of AI techniques. And then the fourth way is, of course, new nuclear weapons with themselves with higher precision and lower explosive yields uh, than we used to uh, historically. And this could permit nuclear deterrence to be more tailored, as the deterrence planners would put it, and that means more believable or more credible. But arguably, it also makes these weapons more usable because plans are being put in place for the use against battlefield and other military targets because they need to appear credible um, or believable. And so you can kind of get these self-reinforcing situations. Right. Well, John, that was that was quite the tour of the force. I think every every sentence you just uttered, I think, could be the setup for an entire podcast or I mean, potentially a lot more than that. But um, I think, unfortunately, though, we can't go further into the emerging technology space, even though even though I'd love to. There's do that a lot for, there. Yeah. I know. Yeah. For reasons of time. But I think that's great uh, for our listeners to be just aware of many of these issues. Um, it is really a huge issue. And that's actually a lot of the work that Unidir has been doing. Um, has been around um, the the role of potential uh, emerging technologies. I myself have been lucky enough to be involved with um, Wilfred and John on work on uh, hypersonic boost glide weapons, for instance, uh, which is something that I think um, UN member states are beginning to think about in a more systematic and serious way. So uh, hopefully that will be uh, sustained uh, through the next um, years as many of these technologies do. Um, some of them enter uh, the operational space uh, after R&D and testing, while others are simply in the R&D phase. So it's important to understand how they're going to bear on uh, things like nuclear risk in the real world. Um, before we close out, I don't want to forget about um, South Asia. Uh, I talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the podcast. It's certainly uh, a part of Asia that I'm personally quite interested in, and including nuclear risk. Um, Manpreet Sethi uh, wrote a great chapter uh, looking at 
nuclear risk uh, issues in South Asia or Southern Asia, rather. Um, Southern Asia includes, in a way, China's role uh, in its deterrence relationship with India and certainly India and Pakistan's own relationship. It's really when we talk about Southern Asia, we're talking about that that triangle that really arises uh, that makes things a little bit more complex. And we and we had I think the whole world had a, a wake up call, um, you know, 21 years after the Indian and Pakistani nuclear tests in 1998, uh, last February, when India and Pakistan were at the brink of an all out war after a major skirmish uh, in Kashmir. Um, Wilfred, tell us a little bit about uh, how our listeners can really think about nuclear risk issues in in South Asia. What are the main pathways here? Yeah, I mean, uh, Manfred really did write a great chapter, and you brought up the the incident last year, the Balakot crisis, and I think it really encapsulates the different risk issues, uh, underlying conditions, and driving factors uh, that can lead to a potential use of nuclear weapons in Southern Asia. Um, it highlights, obviously, the longstanding tension and conflict uh, that has existed between the two uh, sides, um, including over territorial disputes. It highlighted uh, the asymmetries um, in capabilities uh, between the two sides the, in terms of the doctrines, the idea about the role of nuclear weapons, um, which has led one side or the other to test some of the boundaries. And this can really lower the threshold for nuclear weapon use. Um, it also highlighted some developments in capabilities uh, that, frankly, uh, limits the decision-making time that uh, one side or the other has in these crisis situations and can exacerbate the possibility of misperception or miscalculation. And of course, the presence of terrorist actors in the region um, can, can, can add a degree of instability uh, insofar as um, uh, uh, these, these, these crisis situations as well. Right. Um, so before we close out this very fascinating discussion, um, I did want to offer you both just a, a chance to um, give us some last thoughts uh, and, and maybe tell us a little bit about uh, where Unidir's work on uh, nuclear risk reduction might be going next. Um, John, let's start with you. Sure. Well, uh, you know, a, a lot of the work that I'm um, doing at the moment is, as you mentioned before, Ankita, it's thinking about the impacts of some of these strategic technologies and what that's going to mean for the nuclear balance and stability, but also, you know, how arms control and disarmament approaches can can play a useful role in that. But something else that I'm also looking a lot at, and I think that this relates to nuclear risk, but also more broadly to issues around um, the sort of the, the international system that we live in is this relationship between nuclear deterrence and disarmament, you know, because on the one side, all states in the world talk about the desire to one day achieve general and complete disarmament in a nuclear weapon-free world, but that's not the direction, in fact, that we've moved over the last several decades. And, you know, the majority of the world's population live in countries that rely on nuclear weapons for security, and, and they give every indication of continuing to. So there's this tension between nuclear deterrence and disarmament and these other norms which are really important of non-proliferation, of non-use of nuclear weapons. So how do these relate with each other and how do we feasibly move to a situation over time where 
you know, nuclear risk can be reduced uh, permanently and enduringly by actually phasing these weapons out without, um, you know, with, without having unacceptable security costs for countries um, that rely on these on these uh, weapons for the security at the moment. And uh, Wilfred, any uh, any final closing thoughts from you? Sure. I think when we talk about risk reduction, we're also talking about risk awareness, right? And and basically, we, the work that we're doing uh, hopes to 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 increase awareness of how these different pathways to uh, potential nuclear use might take place. Um, I think in this kind of environment, it's critical for policymakers and other state actors to step back and revis revisit some of the assumptions they're making and to consider how doctrines, postures, capabilities, modernization programs, etc., can be interpreted or misinterpreted by the other side and consequently how that impacts on risk. And so as we move forward with this risk framing, we want to uh, visit um, more in depth, some of these uh, dynamics of, of risk and some of these action reaction dynamics that we've talked about on this podcast today. Well, I want to thank you both for taking time out of your busy days uh, to join me um, on the Asia Geopolitics podcast uh, to talk about this. I will include a link to the report in the show notes for the episode. So if listeners want to follow up and uh, take their minds off the global pandemic by reading about nuclear weapons risk, um, <laughs> they'll be um, obviously uh, very free to do that. Um, but uh, John, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. And Wilfred. Thank you very much. Yeah, Wilfred, thank Cheers, you for joining me as well. It's our pleasure, and Kit. Great. So for our listeners, uh, thanks again for listening to the Asia Geopolitics podcast. If you like what you heard on the show, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, please do leave us a review. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, any other number of podcast providers out there. We really do appreciate that. And finally, a quick note about our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.